Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoche, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Russians have landed. This whole dang island's under attack by Russians. The Russians have captured the airport. The Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Yes, the Red Scare is alive and well and back in full steam. That clip we just played is from the 1966 film called, you guessed it, The Russians Are Coming. Since the 2016 election, we've learned a lot about how Russia tried to influence the outcome. Groups with ties to the Kremlin created fake social media profiles and targeted Americans with fake news meant to sow chaos and undermine American democracy. But just how effective they were remains to be seen. But what about American interference in foreign elections? Since the CIA formed in the 1940s, the U.S. has interfered in more than 80 Democratic elections, by one researcher's count. And that's on top of multiple military coups against democratically elected leaders orchestrated by the CIA many of which the government has only publicly acknowledged in recent decades. And a lot of what we've done includes, wait for it, spreading fake news. But is it okay when the United States does it? We're trying to spread democracy and the values of a free society, right? So is it then justified? We want to hear from you. You can join the conversation at 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at wnpr.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining me on the phone from Athens, Georgia, is Locke Johnson. He's a Regents Professor of International Affairs at the University of Georgia School of Public and International Affairs, and he's also author of a new book called Spy Watching, Intelligence Accountability in the United States. Locke Johnson, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. Great pleasure to be with you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. So uh, we talk about many Americans being stunned uh, in, in recent revelations of the way the Russians attempted to influence the outcome of our election with the fake news, the fake troll accounts, all the various organizations that were created to do this job. Uh, but we have our own history of meddling in the elections. We talked about um, one scholar counted more than 80 times that we've done that since uh, from 1946 to 2000. So is any of this new uh, for them, for us? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, this kind of propaganda warfare has been going on for a long time. The CIA likes to put a, a nice glow on it by calling it perception management. <laughs> but what we're really talking about here is propaganda, and both we and the Soviets and now the Russians have been doing it since the beginnings of the Cold War, right after World War II. Now, being an American citizen myself, I'd like to think that the United States was always on the side of the angels and only using propaganda for good causes. And indeed, there are some examples of that, which I'll be happy to talk about before long. But at the same time, we've also been involved in some pretty nasty uses of propaganda ourselves and, and been anything but with the angels. And one of the most classic cases, of course, is the efforts of the United States against uh, Salvador Allende during the 60s and 70s in Chile. That was a very unfortunate use of propaganda and many other kinds of COVID action, because after all, he had been elected in free and open elections by the people of Chile. And, and so we were really tampering, as Putin has recently, with a democracy ourselves in our own hemisphere. Right. And we're going to talk more about Salvador Allende in the B segment. But take us through some of the other um, meddling that maybe you say uh, is is more aligned with American values. Like what sort of things have we done that you think um, are, are are helpful or in or just? Well, at our best, we have been uh, supporters of democracy around the world. We understand, I think, that 
democracies are compatible with our form of government and that if we can have more countries that practice that form of government, then the likelihood of war between the United States and those democratic regimes is much less likely than if they were some other form of government. So that's really been our effort throughout the years since uh, the end of World War II to try and promote democracy, which I think is a good thing. I mean, if one values democracy, then one would like to see us have overt and, when necessary, even covert policies that support that goal. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. Right after World War II ended, we demobilized our troops and, and came home from Europe and got back to civilian jobs. And while that was going on, the Soviets kept their troops in uniform and sent their intelligence service, the KGB, out across Europe to rob banks and and uh, acquire funds any way they could to build up communist parties in Italy and France and everywhere else. And so we soon realized, and certainly by 1946-47, that we had a struggle on our hands because Uncle Joe Stalin was not a nice man. In fact, he was a mass murderer, and he was making rather frightening speeches about having communism spread over the world. So Harry Truman, president at the time, ordered his brand-new organization created in 1947, the Central Intelligence Agency, to do what it could to help the Greeks and the Turks and and uh, people in Latin America and Asia and, and indeed around the world to resist these subterranean communist movements that were getting started. Of course, we were doing that overtly, too, through the Marshall Plan and, and Point Four and other overt programs of the Truman administration. So it didn't take long before the hot war in, in Europe was over in 1945, before we had a Cold War beginning with us against the, the Soviets. And at the time, thanks to Joe Stalin and, and his pretty awful rhetoric and some of the foul deeds that he was involved in, we realized that we were in for a real battle. And so we rolled out not only economic uh, programs that we could use in Europe, the most famous being the Marshall Plan, of course, but also uh, it, underground, the, the use of the CIA, particularly uh, in, in most countries where this is going on, using propaganda to remind the people that communism was a failed uh, future and democracy uh, in support of the United States and the Brits and others was was the, the real future that they should embrace. So what kind of propaganda are we talking about? Are we talking about um, were, were we inventing things? Were we fabricating news? Was it uh, what, what sort of propaganda were we doing? And, and what's the difference between that and, and uh, supporting a coup? Well, the propaganda really took the form in, in about 95 to 98 percent of the cases of really resonating what our government was already saying overtly. So it wasn't false news or false facts. It was simply an effort to, if I could use that tired phrase, win the hearts and minds of people around the world to come our way instead of the Soviet way. And there are a lot of places in the world, such as those people behind the Iron Curtain at the time, who didn't have access to normal newspapers or radio stations. So the United States decided that we needed to beam in stories about what was going on in the West and how that contrasted with the gulag uh, um, and the prison system in the Soviet Union and, and the repressive government that the poor people there were were stuck under. Uh, in a couple of uh, percentage cases, there there was some false propaganda, uh, but pretty rare, really. The whole idea was to try and reach people with the the message about the the virtues of democracy compared to communism wherever we could do it. Uh, the difference between doing that and, and coup d'etat is quite dramatic, of course, because when you're talking about regime change, you're escalating the use of covert action beyond propaganda 
to use secret political means such as bribery or use of money, what the British intelligence services call King George's cavalry to buy influence around the world. You're using economic measures that can be quite uh, fierce, such as uh, mining harbors or blowing up power lines or uh, faking currency to cause inflation in another country. And then the most dramatic of all, paramilitary operations in which you actually use military force, again, covertly or secretly, to bring about a regime change, maybe maybe even by assassinating someone, or at least trying to. But at any rate, uh, uh, maybe using a local army to to move out a leader that you don't like and replace him with one you do. And, you know, while we were doing that, the, the Soviets were doing the same thing. We, the, we and the Soviets could not have an overt war because that would have been the end of civilization. I think both sides knew that. Although we almost forgot during the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and stared into that abyss. But <clears throat> rather than use overt force, which would have been the end of all of us, we had a subterranean war between the KGB and the CIA, to, again, to, to try and um, decide who was going to be the big dog on the planet, the communists or, or the democratic regimes. I wonder, you know, with all the talk about fake news, I mean, you mentioned that majority of the propaganda that was spread at that time um, was generally uh, were, were were sort of talking points that were public. Um, but when they, whenever something was fabricated, um, I wonder what sort of effect that would have on the people when they realize, hey, this is sort of made up. Does that tend? Would that undermine uh, U.S. foreign efforts? Well, I think it does. But but let me give you an idea of. Of, of where uh, false propaganda might be useful even when conducted by a democracy. And let's look at World War II for a minute. We wanted to fool the Germans into thinking we were going to land at Calais, as you recall, and, and instead we landed at Normandy. That's a deception operation. That's false propaganda. And so in rare cases, that can be very, use, be very useful. Now, when I say that 98% or so of our propaganda was, was truthful, uh, I, I can't say the same thing about the Soviet Union. I don't know what the percentage would be there, but I have a feeling that they conducted a lot more deceptive or false uh, propaganda operations than, than we did by, by a long shot. So why did we decide to move away from just propaganda, which seems more or less benign, to more extreme measures? And, and what was sort of the impetus that led to that? Well, this is where we get into a kind of dark side of American history, because I painted a portrait initially here of some cases where we were on the side of the angels fighting for democracy and using propaganda as, as one form. And, and when necessary, when propaganda didn't bring about the results we needed, when the, Joe Stalin had such a chokehold on another country that we felt we had to escalate up to political, economic, and paramilitary oper- operations, and we went that way. But uh, unfortunately, we reached a stage, I think particularly during the Nixon years, uh, but there were elements before and after in which our slogan became ABC, anybody but communists. And we began using propaganda and these other dark arts to prop up the most venal dictators one can imagine, a right-wing military dictators who were torturing their own citizens and, and throwing people into jail with the slightest dissent from them. And that's, that's where I think, at least my own personal view, the CIA and the United States got off track by supporting people who were just as bad as, as the communists might have been. Might have been. They were just slightly uh, wore a different label, but we're, we're, we're terrible people to begin with. But again, the, the, we became obsessed by communism and the fear that countries in Latin America would become like Cuba and Castro and turn against us. 
And so we, we looked for people who we could put in place who we didn't really care that much how venal they were as long as they were anybody but communists, as long as they supported the United States. And that's where the wheels come off the wagon and, and COVID action gets highly discredited for, for good reason. It seems sort of darkly ironic that they were using uh, uh, means to undermine democracy as, as a means to support democracy. Yes, yes, there's a terrible irony involved in a shameful period of American history. And I, I must say, even today, sometimes there are people who, who advocate that. I, you know, the end justifies the means, means is their view. And if they can get someone who's halfway friendly to the United States, they'll take them any day over someone who's less friendly, regardless of what these people might be like. Uh, let me ha- hasten to say that today uh, we're on the side of the angels, if I use, could use that phrase again, at least to some extent, in, in fighting ISIS and other terrorist propaganda. You know, the terrorist group ISIS has proved to be very successful in using social media to recruit people to their brutal cause. And these, these people are basically 14th century barbarians. And so here we're finally, and, and I must say belatedly, um, using propaganda or, you know, using information, if you want to put it more kindly, in order to convince people, particularly young people in the Middle East, that uh, ISIS is a terrible organization, and here's what they do. They, they set people on fire who disagree with them. They chop their heads off. And this is not an organization that you want to be with. And so we, we've needed to counteract, I think, some of the ISIS propaganda. And, and that's our latest emphasis on both overt and, and covert propaganda. So uh, we're speaking with Locke Johnson. He's a professor of international affairs at the University of Georgia School of Public and International Affairs. Um, Locke, we only got a couple of minutes before we got to go to break, but I want you to uh, talk a little bit about the church committee where you were a staffer for. Um, explain to listeners what prompted the formation of that committee, what it did, and what was your role with it as a staff member? The church committee was composed of 11 senators led by Frank Church, a Democrat of Idaho, and each of those senators had a so-called designee, which is a fancy name for, for an assistant. And I was Frank Church's assistant. And we came into existence by an overwhelming bipartisan vote in response to articles in the New York Times that were based on leaks from the CIA, indicating the CIA had been engaged in spying against American citizens. So here we had that Orwellian nightmare of, nightmare of creating the CIA back in 1947, to help us shield ourselves from uh, external hostile forces, and yet that same organization that we created turned against us and began spying on uh, anti-Vietnam War uh, dissenters, as did the the CIA, as did the FBI and some other intelligence organizations. So what we tried to do is to dig into what was called Operation Chaos, the CIA spying episode. And after we turned that rock over, we suddenly, in the process of looking into other agencies, found many other programs that were just horrifying. Perhaps the most horrifying of all was the FBI's COINTELPRO operations, which also spied on anti-Vietnam War dissenters and civil rights activists, but went beyond that and tried to really destroy their personal lives. So it was it was a terrible uh, series of uh, wrongdoings that we were able to, to uncover. And at the end of the road, after looking at this for 16 months, we created a Senate Intelligence Committee to keep an eye on these agencies. And the House of Representatives did the same thing the next year. And I think, therefore, the state of accountability, though hardly perfect to say the least, is a lot better these days than it was prior to the Church Committee. 
So you think the intelligence committee uh, community is behaving better as a result of those efforts? I do, but there are some, and maybe we can talk about this later, there's some unfortunate exceptions to the rule. I mean, we put a lot of laws in place, and we had pretty good oversight going, and then suddenly we had the Iran-Contra affair during the Reagan administration that, that threw all that out the, out the window, mm. and we had to start over again. So as Thomas Jefferson warned us, accountability requires eternal vigilance, and, and we discovered that the hard way. We have to, we had to have even better forms of oversight. And I think after Iran-Contra, we put even um, uh, more safeguards in place, and there are problems still today, but things are a lot better than they used to be. You know, we're going to talk more about Nicaragua in the next segment. I am. Uh, this is where we live. I'm David DeRoshan for Lucent Applethanchel. Today we're talking about election meddling and if it's ever justifiable. We're also talking about other ways that the United States has interfered with democratic processes around the world and its efforts to suppress communism. We're going to turn our attention to Chile, a country that has suffered over, for over two decades under U.S.-backed dictator Augusto Pinochet. Over 40,000 people were killed or went missing during his two-decade rule. Joining us by phone... Joining us by phone to talk through us this history will be uh, a couple of the guests, and please join us. We'll be right back. This is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoshan for Lucy Now Pathanchel. Joining us by phone is Locke Johnson. He's a Regents Professor of International Affairs at University of Georgia. He's helping us walk through the history of U.S. election meddling. Uh, we're going to dive into some uh, a more horrific case of election meddling and Democrat, uh, democratic process meddling, including the overthrow of an elected president of Chile and the installation of a brutal dictator. Uh, uh, also joining us by phone today at the moment is Peter Kornblue. He's a senior analyst at the National Security Archive and author of The Pinochet File, a declassified dossier of atrocity and accountability. Peter Kornblue, welcome to Where We Live. Well, it's a pleasure to be on the show and to be there with Locke Johnson, whose book, uh, A Season of Inquiry on the Church Committee Report, was just a, a, a Bible for me when I, was, uh, when I was younger. Well, that's kind of you, Peter, and it's good to be on the program with you. Well, we're glad to have both of you with us. So uh, I want to talk a little bit more about these interventions. Um, uh, Peter, tell us what you think. Sh- should the U.S. intervene in these foreign elections? Um, uh, and we also want to reach out to our guests. Um, sorry, reach out to the audience, to the people listening. Tell us what you think. Should the U.S. intervene in foreign elections? Tell us, or should we mind our own business? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WNPR.org, or find us on Facebook or Twitter at Where We Live. So we want to dig more into this. So uh, Peter Kornblue, you wrote your book on uh, the Pinochet file about um, the overthrow of Salvador Allende in Chile in the 70s. Can you just break down for us who Salvador Allende was and why was the government so opposed to him being the leader of Chile? Well, Salvador Allende was the leader of the Chilean Socialist uh, Party. Uh, It was a a strong party. Uh, he had been a candidate for president in 1958, 1964, 1970. Um, and uh, the United States, as Locke Johnson was describing, kind of saw itself in a pitched battle for, for the Cold War, but also in Latin America, where we considered this our backyard and, uh, and presumed to kind of have a rather broad degree of hegemony over what went on in our quote-unquote backyard, um, we simply decided that uh, that uh, we couldn't tolerate the free election of a candidate who would um, have a degree of independence from our political, economic, and military control. Uh, and um, 
you know, Salvador Allende was head of a, of a, a coalition of, of progressive and, and radical parties that, that included the, the Chilean Communist Party. But, you know, other countries saw had, had different political systems than we did. And socialist, the Socialist Party was different from the Communist Party, and there were other parties involved. So the United States uh, began to intervene in Chile's political tra- trajectory very seriously during the 1964 election. The CIA actually paid for almost 50% of the Christian Democrat Party uh, leader Eduardo Frey's campaign, along with buying radio stations, planting false articles about Salvador Allende, putting up hostile posters all over the city, you know, the type of information warfare that went on in the, in the old days before there was the, the Internet and social media. And, um, and our, our candidate won. Uh, and then we spent, uh, you know, close to a billion dollars in covert warfare and economic aid to try and keep that party of the Christian Democrats popular, only to find that the Chilean people did not agree with us. Uh, and we intervened again in the 1970 election with what the CIA called spoiling operations. Um, Allende still won that election uh, in 1970. And then, of course, you know, the whole issue of information warfare wasn't uh, – wasn't enough, and Richard Nixon ordered the CIA to foment a coup that included a plot to kidnap and, in the end, assassinate the commander. Peter, are you there? We think we lost you for a second. Oh, Peter is uh, is out, but maybe we can bring in Locke Johnson. Uh, Locke, pick it up where he left off. He was yes, talk- well, well, Peter was doing a marvelous job in explaining what was going on. I would simply add that uh, once Allende won the election, even... Uh, Despite the best efforts we could put forward to stop him, we went after him full bore, and it became quite brutal. One of the methods was to try and cripple his economy, so that would discredit him as president. And there was a, a cable that the church committee found that came from the U.S. ambassador back to the White House that said, we're going to uh, destroy the economy in Chile. We're going to make sure that not a single nut or bolt enters or leaves the country. And one of the things the CIA did was to bring about a, a trucker strike that paralyzed the shipment of commerce around the country of Chile. And of course, all of the, the terrible uh, posters that we'd used to try and prevent him from becoming president, we, we then put up a, in, in criticism of his regime. So it got extremely ugly. And as Peter was talking about, we also began to orchestrate a coup against him, which eventually led to the murder by a faction that had been given funding for weapons by the CIA, the murder of Allende's top military person. And it's a wonder Allende escaped himself, because I think he was a target as well. So it's it's a pretty dark chapter in American foreign policy. Mm, dark chapter indeed. Uh, we do have Peter back. Peter, I'm hoping the, the CIA wasn't listening and didn't knock you off uh, to interrupt your, your comments. Well, we we but... haven't gotten quite to the end of that story, which is that we then pursued that very effort to unseat Allende. Um, because, uh, until 1973, uh, when we helped uh, Augusto Pinochet, who became... You know, whose name became synonymous with with vile human rights violations to power, and he, he stayed as a dictator in Chile for 17 years. I, I I should add this issue, which is very germane to our discussion, which is that I was able to unearth a, a document which the um, Church Committee never saw, 
um, uh, and, and didn't use in its report, where, where Henry Kissinger explains to Richard Nixon why it was necessary to undermine Salvador and to make sure that he failed. And the reason was, was because he was democratically elected. Uh, he was a, a leftist who was democratically elected, elected. And so if he succeeded, he would have what Kissinger explained to Nixon would be the imitative phenomena. Uh, other countries, not only in Latin America, but in the NATO alliance, would adopt this formula of kind of coalition building on the left and gain popular support. And the United States would have little answer because, precisely because they were democratically elected. So in this first example... Kissinger argued, argued and won the argument. Um, we had to go in with, you know, kind of guns covertly blazing and make sure that there was no successful model of the democratic election and successful governance of a progressive coalition. I want to turn to um, the rest of Latin America because the United States does have a significant history there. Um, the overthrow of Jacopo Arbenz from Guatemala in 1954, which eventually led to the installation of a dictator who, you know, some might say it was worse than Pinochet, Rios Mont, who he was convicted of genocide. His regime murdered some 200,000 people. Most of them are Mayans. Um, and, and basically what happened there was the United Fruit Company um, uh, was, was worried about bananas, the banana industry being nationalized. And so the United States got involved to to ensure that the business interests were were maintained there. So I'm, I'm wondering what sort of uh, and also in Nicaragua with the Sandinistas and the Contras, how has um, Brazil, what other Brazil sort of legacy? In 19, Brazil in 1964 right, uh, right. against Goulart, the coup against Goulart, which was CIA inspired. Um, you have a long history in Latin America of U.S. intervention to control the futures of those countries. Uh, and um, as I was saying, we saw this region as our sphere of influence. And by the way, we would do we did this before the Cold War. Uh, before the Cold War served as a rationale, we simply sent in the Marines in the, early in the 1900s and in the 1800s. Um, we've all heard of the Monroe Doctrine, where we just kind of relegated to ourselves uh, control over this this area. So while one can focus on the Cold War and the CIA historically, we take a broader view. It's simply uh, a kind of a hegemonic power approach to a, a region that the United States and U.S. policymakers will have wanted to control and tried to control for, you know, close to 200 years. So let's jump back to today. Let's talk about um, back to Russian meddling. Um, I want to play a clip from Fox News host Laura Ingram talking with former CIA director James Woolsey. Uh, this was in the context of a serious conversation about the danger of Russian meddling in future elections. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably. But uh, it was for the good of the system in order to avoid the communists from taking yeah. over. For example, in Europe, uh, uh, in 47, 48, 49, uh, the Greeks and the Italians, we... We don't do CIA. that now, though. We don't mess around other people's well, elections, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Only for a very good Can cause. Can you do that? Do a Vine video on a former CIA director. Only for a very good cause in okay. the interests of democracy. All right, thanks for being here. I would like to get your response, uh, Peter Kornblou, um, to that the CIA, former CIA director sort of joking about meddling in elections today. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I would guess that we uh, do meddle in, in the elections of other countries today. Um, I think we've been doing it all along uh, uh, with evolving techniques. It's harder 
uh, without kind of some big scandal that that forces uh, a brave senator like Senator Frank Church to to push, you know, for information on this to to know what's going on covertly uh, in this in this day and age. But I think one of the most important things about what's happened with the Russian involvement in our election here in the United States is that it's a, a learning and a teaching moment for U.S. citizens. Those who uh, are aghast that the Russians might have swung the election to Donald Trump really understand the feeling that uh, citizens in many other countries have had uh, to have some external power come in and uh, and put their foot on the scales of, uh, of uh, you know electoral process. Um, and knowing what we know now and how it feels, I'm hoping that there'll be more of a public debate over the techniques the United States is likely using even today uh, in other countries um, uh, around the world, um, whether this is the right thing to do, uh, an appropriate thing to do. So I want to ask Locke Johnson, where do we stand today? What sort of covert operations um, is the U.S. doing now to influence democratic outcomes? Well, uh, I think Pete is exactly right. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to think more about whether or not we should be doing activities like this. And specifically to your question, the answer is we don't really know because these are highly classified activities. But every now and then, um, word leaks out that we continue to do these kinds of propaganda operations. You know, during the Cold War, for a period there, we were putting 80 to 90 newspaper articles secretly into foreign newspapers as part of our propaganda efforts. And often those newspapers were in, in Germany or France or other fellow democracies. And one just begins to think that that's really inappropriate. But if you apply the golden rule to foreign policy, which we really do, but we should, we probably should not be doing activities against others that we don't want done against us. Uh, when uh, the Church Committee had public hearings about COVID action and propaganda and so on, our key witnesses said that COVID action should only be used in the most extreme cases as a matter of last resort. But instead, we use it routinely, and, and we also run into the phenomenon that's called blowback, where we will plant media articles overseas in, in various newspapers, only to find that our own reporters, who are, after all, overseas reporting on what's going on, uh, reporting back these same propaganda operations in our own newspapers. So the CIA sets out to brainwash some foreign country, and that same story ends up back here in our own newspapers without us knowing its origin. Mm. Um, David DeRoshan for Lucy Napotential. We're speaking with Locke Johnson. He's a professor uh, at the University of Georgia, and we're also speaking with Peter Kornblue. He's a senior analyst at the National Security Archive. We're talking about election meddling and if it's ever justifiable. We want to hear from you. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email at where we live. Uh, email where we live at WNPR.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I wanted to ask, you know, do, there are a couple of things that we do know about recent incidents. Um, for example, Robert Gates admitted in his memoir that the U.S. tried to oust Ahmed Karzai from Afghanistan in a failed coup attempt. And also uh, after the coup in Honduras in 2009, the U.S. publicly chastised the coup, but then uh, continued to um, public continue to give money, fund Honduras for uh, until 2016 with some uh, the tune of 200 million dollars um, when the government there had been uh, deemed illegitimate by the international community. So I'm sort of wondering, um, are these uh, techniques that are happening now? Do you feel like they they are are they soften? Are they more benign? Or are we still potentially supporting coups to overthrow people that don't align with our policies? 
if you're talking to me, I would I would say that uh, yeah. most of our propaganda these days are really oriented toward counterterrorism, and one can make a strong argument that that's a good thing. After all, the the ISIS group has no scruples about using the most venal forms of, of, of propaganda and other methods to recruit individuals to their uh, terrible uh, cause. And so uh, if we respond by providing counter-information, a better sense of the reality of what ISIS is all about, one could argue that's a good idea. But I fear that we've gone beyond counter-terrorism to do some of these old tricks in different countries around the world, too. And what I find particularly objectionable is when we put newspaper articles covertly into, say, the Frankfurter Allgemeine or a German newspaper or some other media outlet in a fellow democracy. I, I, I just don't see that it's any of our business to be tampering with, with fellow democracy. But when you're taking on the terrorists, that's a different matter. Oh, sorry, we, uh, did we lose somebody? All right, so um, we are just having a little bit of technical difficulties. We're hoping that it's not... Um, it's not some intelligence agencies messing with our show because we're having a great conversation about um, the the sort of the history of, uh, of election meddling and if it's ever justifiable. Um, I wanted to take, uh, we do have one call, uh, Cynthia from Watertown. She is giving us a call. Uh, Cynthia, do you want to, is she there? Is Cynthia not there? Okay, we don't have Cynthia. Oh, she's there. Okay. Um, Cynthia, Hi. welcome to where we live. We'll go ahead with your comment or question. What do you, what's on your mind? Um, well, I, I wanted to, I, I went down to Columbus, Georgia a number of years ago to participate in a demonstration in civil disobedience against the School of the Americas, which was instrumental during uh, the 70s, uh, 680s, 90s, in teaching the military of different countries how to utilize covert action and torture against people of their own country. And I was one. I haven't heard much about it lately, and I was wondering if your guests knew anything more about the status of the School of the Americas and if it's still operative. And if so, how is it how is it operating at this point? Great question. And I'll take the answer off the air. Great question, um, uh, Professor Johnson. Do you want to take that? What's the situation with the School yeah, of the Americas? I, I would commend Cynthia for her protest movement because that was a pretty terrible program that we were involved in. And we, we, it's no longer in existence, but I have a feeling that some of those same methods are used through different avenues, which is to say we still have close contact with military people in various Latin American countries, and we still talk to them, unfortunately, about various methods they might use to suppress dissent in their country. That's really, again, I would say none of our business. But, you know, when we in the United States are putting up as a candidate for the next CIA director, a woman who was deeply involved in the torture program herself, and not only that, but engaged at the highest levels in destroying evidence about that torture program, then is it any surprise we're also in cahoots with right-wing dictators in different countries talking about how they can suppress their own citizens? So we have a real litmus test here, I think, on Capitol Hill. Are members going to support someone who is up to their scuppers in the torture program, or will they be courageous enough to take a stand against torture and turn down that nominee for the CIA director? And Peter, just one, one more question. We have to go to break soon, but I wanted to ask um, uh, um, 
either of you, Peter, whoever is comfortable taking the question, um, you know, you hear sometimes the, the claim that you know, foreign policies in places like Iran with the overthrow of Mossadegh in the early 50s, um, with, uh, with uh, the, um, the war in Afghanistan, that we, that sort of American foreign policies and attempts to overthrow democratically elected officials sort of led to the extreme uh, groups that we're seeing rise out of these countries. What, what, how would you respond to that claim? I'd be happy to do that, Peter, but I'm pleased to defer to you as well. Go, go ahead. Go ahead, Professor Locke. Peter okay. is actually on um, right, well, us I guess Peter's not there, but, but I would say yes. I mean, take, for example, the situation in, in Iran in 1953. We decided that Mossadegh, who was actually a nationalist more than anything, he wasn't a communist um, in any of way that counted. He was just mildly socialist, most historians would argue. But by getting rid of him and putting in the Shah of Iran, who turned out to be a, a pretty bad actor who tortured his own citizens and had his intelligence service called Sabah carrying out really brutal operations against them, it turned uh, the country of Iran against us and brought in the Mullahs in 1979 and revolutionary there revolution in, in Iran, and that country has been against us ever since. So our, our meddling in this case, thrusting upon the people of Iran a, an individual who turned out to be quite corrupt and, and uh, brutal, uh, backfired against us. And this happens time and time again. Professor Johnson, we're hoping you can stick around. So we're having a little bit of trouble with our next segment guest. If you could stick around for the next segment, that'd be great. Okay. Um, we've been talking with Locke Johnson. He's a professor and author uh, at the University of Georgia. We also were speaking with Peter Cornblue. He's author of the Pinochet File. I'm David DeRoche. This is where we live. Um, coming up, we'll hear from a journalist who spent 20 years with the New York Times covering the effects of America's foreign policies in other countries. What do you think about U.S. meddling? Is it justified or should we mind our own business? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WNPR.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I'm David DeRoche, and for Lucy Nalpothanchel, this is where we live. We're talking about the United States and how it uses various tactics to install foreign leaders who could be sympathetic to American interests. What what those interests exactly are is hard to tell. Is it for democracy, or are there other motives at play? It's also hard to tell because of how we get information. So with, with us now to help us unpack the media's role in these foreign policies is Stephen Kinzer. He's a senior fellow at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. He was a foreign correspondent for the New York Times for over 20 years, and he currently writes a column on world affairs for the Boston Globe. He's also the author of numerous books, including Bitter Fruit, All the Shah's Men, among others. How important is it to spread democracy? Is the U.S. brand the best brand? Should the media be a champion of establishing democracy? Or should it be an unbiased observer, a seeker of truth? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WNPR.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Stephen Kinzer, welcome to Where We Live. Good to be with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Hopefully, we are we won't experience any more technical difficulties. It's hard to see the it's hard not to see the irony in doing a show about um, about the CIA manipulation of elections and having so many technical difficulties. But anyway, we'll jump right in. You've written a lot about the U.S.'s history of political and electoral intervention, both as a journalist um, covering it contemporaneously and as a historian. Just broad strokes, reflections on some of the points that our guests were bringing up earlier. What are some of your takeaways of, of this conversation? 
The United States has intervened in more countries more frequently, further away from our own borders over a longer period of time than any other country. So a regime change is us. Interfering in elections is us. We, we, uh, we invented the game, more or less, in the modern world. Um, it's a little bit odd, naturally, for people in other countries to hear the United States crying out uh, in pain, crying foul after we believe that some outside force has tried to influence our elections. You can imagine people in countries uh, where democracy has not been allowed to flower because of American intervention rolling their eyes when they see the United States howling in pain and, and protesting uh, election in, uh, interference or other kinds of uh, political efforts aimed at shaping our political system. The United States really believes that there's only one good way to run a country. It's the way we do it. And we judge other countries by how close they come to our model. We also believe that we have a sphere of influence that includes effectively the entire world. Our sphere of influence goes right up to the borders of China and Russia. Outside of those two countries, we consider all the rest of the world to be our sphere of influence. When, when uh, governments emerge in other countries that insist on placing their own interests, the interests of their own countries, ahead of the interests of the United States, that's when the United States gets involved. And I think it's because if you want to put a uh, benign face on this, uh, we truly believe that the interests of the United States are the interests of everybody, and that countries that support the United States are, by definition, also supporting what's good for their own country. The idea that patriotic nationalists uh, in other countries would freely vote for a government that is going to defy the United States, that's going to place the interests of their own country ahead of those of the United States and, so, and say that those interests are different uh, is something we can't grasp. I want to turn to Locke Johnson. What's your response to to this idea that um, U.S. interests are are that um, every country should have share the same interests? What, how would you respond to that? Well, I think the the gentleman makes some good points, but it it, it seemed to me that uh, left out of the equation is the fact that the Soviets were quite aggressive too in the world, and they wanted to exert their influence as, as widely as we did. And at times, the Chinese have been the same way. So it's not as though we completely invented this game and we're the only ones playing it. I think the Cold War was all about a struggle between the ideology of democracy on the one side, and not just America's form of democracy, but parliamentary democracy, and democracy takes many forms. Uh, on one hand, and then on the other hand, the, the kind of Stalinist view of the world that came out of Moscow. So... This was, this was a real ideological battle, and it's, it wasn't one-sided by any means. And I, and I would argue that there, there is a, a virtue in trying to help democracies take root in different places. I agree with the gentleman that sometimes we've demanded to be just like our democracy, which is foolish because uh, there are many different forms democracy can take, and sometimes democracy takes decades to, to actually get going. It's a very fragile form of government, particularly in the beginning. But I think supporting democracy, which strikes me as being much more sensible than allowing communism or totalitarian regimes to take root and completely destroy the liberty of the citizens of those countries. So I want to continue this conversation, but I do want to get to a caller. Um, uh, Tarrington is calling from Hampton. Tarrington, go ahead with your comment or question. 
Hi. So as a student, I worked on, on George Kennan a fair amount. Um, and I, I guess his take is interesting to bring in, partially because, well, partially because he was very much involved in the, in the game of, of modifying elections. He, his fingerprints are over the, I guess, the 48 Italian election. A lot of what goes on in, in Southern Europe um, in the beginning of the Cold War. But he gets out of it, I, I think, basically because he realizes that there's that, that he can't discern an American interest to work toward. And given that, he's kind of increasingly disillusioned with our ability to do anything positive toward our own interests by mainland. So what do you think? Do you think um, that our interests are generally shared by other countries, or do, is it okay to have countries that have different interests? Um, I, I, think it, I think our view of our interests is so um, amorphous and uh, unarticulated um, that it's very difficult for us to actually make, to, to, uh, to um, be effective. Um, and I think, I mean, I think the idea that democracies support each other and so on and so forth is, is um, well, has been put to the test by the fact, by the ah, degree to which American democracy has shown itself uh, not to be able to choose the best path. Best path. Tarrington, thank you so much for your call. We only got a couple of minutes. Um, I want to turn to uh, Professor Locke. Can you just give an idea of uh, the f- uh, how effective propaganda can be? Are, you, you mentioned blowback. Um, what kind of fallout um, can happen by the effects of our interventions? You know, David, it's very difficult to measure the effects of propaganda. I've spoken to some Russian dissidents who, uh, after the Cold War, came over to this country, and they told me that some of the CIA propaganda coming in, copies of Solzhenitsyn's uh, Gulag, for example, or copies of Newsweek or Time magazine, sort of kept a a spark of hope alive in them as they had resided behind the Iron Curtain. But I must say that's a fairly feeble outcome for all the billions of dollars we spent on propaganda. I I personally just don't think it's been all that effective. And I I like the, 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 the standard that witnesses before the Church Committee offered, and that is we should use these operations only in the most circumstances instead of making it a routine, routine, uh, routine part of our foreign policy, especially targeted against fellow democracies, which we continue to do, and it, it's quite objectionable, I think. I want to turn back to Stephen Kinzer. Stephen, you've covered this as a journalist. You were in Nicaragua um, when uh, the, the Iran, um, when the Contra affair took place. Um, what was it like covering the Sandinistas in Nicaragua as a journalist, uh, trying to wade through propaganda, trying to sift truth from fiction? Um, what, what was it like for you working in, in that time in that area? That was, of course, a classic example of the United States deciding that uh, a country uh, was not following policies that that we approved of. Again, this was in the context of the Cold War. Uh, Nicaragua, in some ways, is the equivalent of Syria today in the sense that uh, the war going on in that country really had nothing to do with that country. The Nicaraguan Civil War was not about Nicaragua. The Syrian War is not about Syria. This is all about outside players finding an arena uh, in which they can fight for their own interests. So it's most unfortunate for any country when it winds up being the arena for big power conflicts. One of the things that I covered in Nicaragua that particularly speaks to the question we're discussing was the 1984 
presidential election. So you'll remember that the Reagan administration was regularly denouncing the Sandinistas for being undemocratic. Partly as a result of this, the Sandinistas decided to hold an election in 1984. So the Americans then had to decide, how are we going to handle this? Because the Sandinistas may have had a propaganda coup by deciding to hold an election. So what the CIA did was recruit a candidate. They actually found a prominent Nicaraguan living in Washington. They brought him to dinner in a uh, Vietnamese restaurant in Georgetown, and they proposed to him, we want you to go back to Nicaragua and be the opposition candidate in this election. He agreed. He came back. I can remember him walking into the airport, flying in from Washington to run for president of Nicaragua. And then how was the campaign supposed to unfold? The idea was that he would try to campaign, and then towards the end, just before the election, he would get up and say, you cannot have a free election in this country. The Sandinistas are making it impossible for me to campaign. I have no alternative but to quit the campaign. And that's exactly what the CIA wanted him to do and what he did do. The idea was then to show the world that uh, this election was actually a fraud. But that entire process, the recruitment of the candidate, uh, his uh, provocative statements provoking uh, Refreshing from the Sandinistas, and then his decision dramatically to withdraw from the election and denounce the lack of democracy in Nicaragua was all according to a script that had been prepared in the United States. So I watched this process uh, close up and saw how the United States takes an election not as a way to try to produce a government that actually reflects what people want, but as a way to make larger political points, regardless of what the effect might be on democracy inside a foreign country. Well, Stephen Kinzer, we've got a lot, had a lot to talk about, but we are absolutely out of time, unfortunately. Thank you so much to Stephen Kinzer, Senior Fellow at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. I want to thank Locke Johnson. He's a Regents Professor of International Affairs at the University of Georgia's School of Public and International Affairs. And Peter Kornblue, Senior Analyst at the National Security Archive. Thanks so much to our guests for joining us. Um, this is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoche. You can follow us at Where We Live at WN and email us at Where We Live at WNPR.org. Want to uh, uh, thank everybody for joining us this afternoon. Uh, Locke Johnson's new book is called Spy Watching Intelligence and Accountability in the United States. Um, Got to thank some people. Gotta, this episode is produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Julius Brown and Garnet McLaughlin. Thanks so much for listening.